0: I am Eden.
1: And I'm Nicole. Welcome
0: to Roadside, Roadside Horror Show. Show. We are in.
1: Wisconsin. Thank you. Yeah, it's our part two of Wisconsin. So I have a lovely true crime story for you. And Eden has a delightful, somewhat lighthearted, he tells me. Yes. Paranormal story. So.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun.
1: Excellent. Excellent. I have some weird laws for Wisconsin. Um, okay couple because i kind of got sucked into this whole understanding of the dairy world in wisconsin because you know huge dairy state they produce a lot of cheese and that really is reflective of a lot of their weirder laws okay so the first one i came across which started me down this i wouldn't even say rabbit hole it's more like a slip and slide into the world of
0: dairy law okay Slip and slide. i just imagining like a slip and slide with like milk instead of water now. Yummy. To get to the pile of cheese at the end. Delicious. So
1: apparently in Wisconsin from 1925 to 1967, the sale of margarine, aka oleo margarine, was banned.
0: The only reason I know the oleo thing is because of crosswords. Oh yeah? It's always a crossword answer. Oleo.
1: Um, I guess they banned the sale of oleo because... They were very good. Well, the dairy farmers in the state were very concerned that it was going to destroy the market for butter.
0: Okay. I could see that.
1: It got to the point where people would go on oleo runs, a.k.a. go across the state line to Illinois and get bootleg margarine and come back and sell it.
0: Okay. Amazing. That is pretty cool. There is a little bit of a bootlegger thing in my story, too.
1: Nice, nice. Even to this day, it's illegal for restaurants to serve diners margarine unless the diner specifically requests margarine.
0: Really? Yep. Okay.
1: It's like you got to know. You got to know to ask for it.
0: That is crazy. It's like that Starbucks secret menu. You're
1: like, I can't believe it's not butter. It's like, it is butter, sir. Would you like some margarine? <laughs> huh. Okay. <laughs> So speaking of dairy laws, I have a couple more because Wisconsin has a bunch of laws dedicated to the definition and protection of cheese.
0: Okay. Very protective of their dairy industry. They they really are. Yeah. I mean, that's why they wear those like cheese hats and shit. (laughs) Totally.
1: (laughs) So the state has statutes that define 18 terms for flavor characteristics of cheese legally and legal definitions for the body and texture characteristics of cheese. Wow. Yeah. And then there's additional regulatory guidelines about how you apply those cheese definitions.
0: That is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah. I'm like, oh, there's so many. I found a list of some of the textures and things, but I didn't capture them because they're what you expect. You know, creamy, curdy, that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, there are a ton of laws that protect the production of cheese as well. So one of them that I thought was kind of delightful is that you need a license, a special license in Wisconsin to make cheese, period. But if you decide, I want to make Limburger cheese, a.k.a. the stinkiest cheese on the planet. Yes. Like the cheese equivalent of like a durian fruit. Oh, yes. You must get a master cheesemaker's license. Wow. I don't know how you get it,
0: but. Oh, damn. I was curious.
1: I, I couldn't find much about it other than like how you apply for one, but I'm like, it's just how much in. schooling do you need? <laughs> you need to demonstrate your mastery of three different types of cheeses before you can make Limburger. I don't know.
0: You need to be able to get to stink level ultra. Stink
1: level ultra. (laughs) Uh, They also have quite a few laws classifying cheddar because Wisconsin cheddar is a huge part of their cheese market, right? Apparently, for something to be considered double A cheddar, it must be, quote, highly pleasing.
0: Highly pleasing. All right.
1: For it to be a B rating, it only needs to be fairly pleasing.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I I think that I've probably eaten stuff before and been like, this is... Fairly pleasing.
1: <laughs> I guess my main question is, how does one get a gig as a pleasing taste tester for Wisconsin yeah. Cheddar? Is it a civil service job? Do you get wine with that? I mean, I
0: I'm, I'm, hope it's a civil service job. You get like amazing pay and benefits that way. And you I mean, get to eat cheese. I'm, one of our favorite things.
1: Exactly. I'm purely asking for a friend, <laughs> not for myself in any way, shape or form yet. Uh, moving away from cheese, they also keeping with the farmers have power in wisconsin apparently it's has a lot of uh, rules around livestock and how you keep livestock which is great but one of the ones that i feel made me question how convenient it would be to drive around wisconsin is that if you drive a motor vehicle in wisconsin and you come across a livestock in the road Mm -hmm. you must yield the right of way to the livestock
0: i could see that that's not so crazy i
1: guess but you have to wait for them to be completely driven across the road so someone's moving their cows from one field and it happens you have to wait you can't go around oh man you have to wait for that animal to not be in the road anymore before you can proceed
0: it's like the alligators all over again
1: yes it's like the alligators all over again so i guess in wisconsin the chicken crosses the road because bitch you gotta wait right away yeah that's it so yeah wisconsin they love their cheese and their animals
0: that's always good. I yeah. love cheese and animals as well. I
1: also like cheese and animals, usually separately.
0: Yes. Unless it's a burger, then I like them at the same time.
1: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah.
0: And with you saying about cheddar, and yeah, definitely Wisconsin cheddar, and then also Vermont is like another one that I associate mm-hmm. with cheddar. Mm-hmm.
1: In New York. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Any hoodles, that's my fun weird laws for Wisconsin.
0: That was delightful. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome.
1: Uh, so my story today is not about farmers or chickens or cheese or any kind of livestock really Uh, but it is in a lovely little town okay it's a town called spring green wisconsin
0: never heard of it
1: nor had i but it is a small town of about 1600 people in south central wisconsin it's about 35 miles west of madison wisconsin the state capital and it was established in 1843 the name Spring Green comes from the way that the south facing hills in the area turned bright green in this early spring. Nice. It sounds like a very beautiful town, I will say. Historically, the town was a shipping point for livestock. Oh I lie. There are livestock
0: in my story. Yeah, and call you dirty liar.
1: Dirty liar, guys. But yeah, in Spring Green they do uh it's always been considered a shipping point for livestock and also has a pretty healthy economy based on wheat and dairy farming, lumber, cheese making, all those things you expect from like a rural region in Wisconsin. Today, the modern economy, while it's still based on agriculture and includes, you know, raising livestock, corn, dairy production, there's also a lot of tourism and glass manufacturing in the area as well. Now, spring green, as the name suggests, is surrounded by a lot of natural beauty. Visitors can explore nature in several close-by state parks, including Tower Hill, Governor Dodge, and Blue Mound state parks, and they're all just south of the town. Very nice. The town's also known for the American Players Theater, where you can see outdoor performances, plays by William Shakespeare in the warmer summer months. And they do some other plays, but it's mostly Shakespeare's like their main repertoire. Pretty cool. Springing Green is also home to one of the most amazing tourist attractions in the U.S., in my opinion at least. This little place called House of the Rock. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Okay. It's super cool. Originally, it was a house built by this man named Alex Jordan on top of Deer Shelter Rock, which is this big rock column that rises above the forest. Oh, nice. Now, he opened it to the public in 1959 and has since grown into this complex of shops and there's a resort there and inn as well as the original House of the Rock. Now, there's some crazy ass rooms in the house. Uh, Some of them that I think are super cool is the infinity room, which is this long room that juts out like 220 some odd feet from Deer Shelter Rock. And it's suspended without any supports underneath it. So it's basically just like a free floating room that suspends out. Okay. It has all of these windows, 3,000 in total, and these little panes that allow you to look at this panoramic of the forest and hills around you. There's the Streets of Yesterday section of House of the Rock, which is a recreation of an early 20th century American town. Damn. The Heritage of the Sea, which features a bunch of nautical objects, including a 200-foot model of a fanciful sperm whale-like sea creatures. Okay. There's the Music of Yesterday, which is this huge collection of like jukeboxes and other musical machines. That's cool. And also the world's largest indoor carousel. Uh, the carousel at House on the Rock features 269 carousel animals, 182 chandeliers, over 20,000 lights, and hundreds of mannequin angels hanging from the ceiling. Creepy. But there's no horses on that carousel. Huh. It's all other animals. Yeah, super creepy. If you're a fan of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Which I am. Uh, if you've ever seen the TV show or read the book, he mentions House on the Rock. It's part. Some of the scenes are shot there. So that really wacky bar that they're in with the huge oh. sperm well, that's actually House of the Rock. Okay. It was also used in the 10,000 Maniacs uh, music video for more than this. that shows them in there. Oh, wow. And the house is just super cool. It has a bunch of weird collections of little odds and ends. But it's not the only architectural treasure, surprisingly, in this area of Wisconsin. Also located in Spring Green, you'll find the home of architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Okay. And you've heard of Frank Lloyd right? I know right? who that is. Yeah. He's probably the most famous American architect, definitely one of them. Yes. And he actually grew up nearby and eventually built a home for himself in Spring Green. That home is named Taliesin, which is a Welsh name that means shining brow. And it's actually going to be our stop for today. Okay. Built in the early 20th century, Taliesin was meant to be a retreat for Frank Lloyd Wright but it became the setting for the final chapters of a scandalous love affair that ended in murder. Ooh, wow.
0: Okay. I'm intrigued.
1: I'd never heard of this and I was kind of surprised I never heard of it, but I'm yeah, also I've never heard of it either. Like my knowledge of like Frank Lloyd Wright is like the prairie school and he and like the couple of the house he design, like yeah. falling water, and I'm like, Oh, they're cool, whatever.
0: I know his name, I know who he was, but I don't know a whole lot about him.
1: Well, we're gonna learn some. I guess we will. So Frank Lloyd Wright was born on June 8, 1867 in Richland Center, Wisconsin. He studied civil engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And after an apprenticeship, he opened his own architecture firm in Chicago in 1893. Over the course of Wright's 70-year career, he worked as a successful architect, furniture designer, writer, and educator. Now, he's mostly known for his innovative style. And when he designed items or poems, whatever he was working on, He really tried to create harmony between people and their environment. It was a philosophy he called organic architecture. Okay. Now, he applied this design philosophy to more than 1,000 structures during his lifetime and was a big proponent of a style of design that was nicknamed the Prairie School or the Prairie Style. It's an architectural style that grew out of the 19th century arts and crafts movement, and you see it a lot in the Midwest. Okay. Okay. It's really marked by this kind of horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves. You'll see a lot of cantilevered porches. I think I know what you're yeah.
0: talking about. What did you say it was called again?
1: The prairie school style.
0: Okay, I'm going to look it up quick.
1: Other important aspects of the design are windows are always grouped in like horizontal bands. Trying to You try to integrate the landscape around you. There's often the use of open floor plans and there's a very disciplined use of ornamentation so it's a very okay. simple modern clean style it's
0: very modern looking a lot more modern looking than i was expecting
1: yeah for sure when you realize that somebody who's designing or like you know in the late 1890s early 1900s it's yeah. like, oh this looks like it could have been built in the 50s or the, 60s uh,
0: absolutely yeah
1: so the nickname prairie school kind of comes from the idea that those really I like this one yeah the really flat buildings yeah they're cool the flat buildings the low roofs that sort of thing is reflective of Like the flat wide treeless american plains
0: i'm gonna have to boot up the sims later and make another house
1: you're welcome i keep giving you good sim (laughs) ideas
0: i literally do not play the game i build houses and quit
1: (laughs) now ray began his career as a young architect in chicago as i previously mentioned and he kind of hit at a great time chicago was experiencing a building surge Uh, it experienced a huge fire in 1871 that leveled a lot of the city and there was a huge population influx with an increase in manufacturing. In 1898, while he was living in Chicago, he married Catherine Kitty Tobin, and the two would have six children together over the next decade and a half. Wow. Yeah, very productive in all kinds of ways.
0: Very productive, very reproductive.
1: Yes, very productive, very productive. I like that. <laughs> now, during this time, Wright left his apprenticeship and started his own architecture firm that rapidly expanded. Between 1900 and 1910, he became well-known for this prairie school of design for modern homes, having built 50-plus homes in this style in the greater Chicago area, and he also worked on a couple commercial buildings as well. Cool. Now, this is also the same time frame when Wright met Edwin Cheney, who was an electrical engineer, and his wife, Mama Brothwick Cheney, who was a well-educated librarian and translator. Okay. Wright was commissioned in 1903 to build the couple's Oak Park, Chicago home, but over the course of that commission, Wright ended up becoming totally enamored of Mama. Okay. Now, she was a pretty impressive lady, I have to say. She kind of embodied this modern feminist woman of the turn of the century with a bunch of ideas and interests outside of the home. She wanted more than just raising
0: children. Wait, a man is interested in a woman with ideas? Shh,
1: I know. Crazy, right? That's
0: wow. Innovative. Yeah.
1: She was born in Boone, Iowa. My mom, Brothwick, had earned both her bachelor's and her master's degrees from the University of Michigan. Holy crap. Yeah. she was very well educated. In that
0: time period. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm shocked.
1: Uh, she primarily used those degrees as a translator, like she would translate from different languages. Mm. Um, uh, she was primarily responsible for translating and spreading the work of Swedish feminist and ethical writer Ellen Key in America. And Ellen Key is uh, her work. Eventually, became the basis for a lot of like postmodern socialism and gender equality rights and works. That's like really that. cool. Yeah, super I cool. I like her. Mama was definitely a interesting woman. Of, at the time,
0: now I have two new heroes this week—one <laughs> from your story, one from mine. Awesome.
1: Now Wright was again very innovative, being into a woman interest outside the home. That's great.
0: Right? It's it's it is for that time. It was very uh, very like what what are you thinking? You want your wife to have uh, ideas Perhaps and thoughts career? of her own? What doesn't that make you feel emasculated?
1: <sighs> well, Wright considered Mama his intellectual equal, and a compelling, quote, spiritual soulmate. Wow. Yeah. Now, while Mama had two children with her husband, Edwin Cheney, between 1902 and 1905, she still seems to have been really drawn to Frank Lloyd Wright. They began to spend more time together, and after 1905, people started to gossip. They would see Mama and Wright driving around Oak Park in Wright's automobile, spending time together without their spouses, and that immediately started cranking up the old rumor mill. Oh, yeah. Now, both the Wrights and the Cheneys moved in pretty well-to-do social circles in Chicago, so this was definitely a gossipy affair. Everything came to a head in 1909, however. That's when Wright and Mama left their families and traveled to Europe. They ended up living together for a year in Italy. During that time, Mama's husband agreed to a divorce, but Wright's wife Kitty absolutely refused to grant him a divorce. So, with nothing else to do but unable to get married, the couple returns to Chicago in 1910. Now, when they get back to Chicago, pretty much all of their friends and family were completely scandalized and embarrassed about their affair. They were basically living in sin. Not only that, but because Wright was a pretty prominent architect in the city, newspapers started criticizing the couple. They implied that Wright would soon be arrested for immorality. Ooh! Even though To be arrested for adultery, something like that, one of the spouses would have to press charges. Yeah, there
0: needs to be a complaining witness.
1: Exactly. Uh, Wright's professional reputation also suffered because of the affair, and he lost all but his most loyal of clients. Oh, damn. Um, He ended up not really having another big commission until like 1914, and this is all like 1910. So
0: That's a long time ago.
1: Yeah. But never fear for Frank Lloyd Wright because he used that time well. He decided that he was going to escape the city and take Mama with him. So, he convinces his mother to purchase a large plot of land next door to her property in Spring Greens for him. He wanted his mother to purchase it because he didn't want his purchasing of the land to leak to like the newspapers. Yeah. Once they had secured the property, Wright set about building an estate. That estate would eventually be known as Taliesin. He envisioned it as a retreat from Chicago, a special place where he and Mama could share a life together.
0: That's cool. Pretty
1: romantic, right?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Can't get can't get her a ring, but he can get her a house. Yeah.
0: So, I'll take a house over a ring.
1: <laughs> Wright finished the initial building of Taliesin by the winter of 1911, and the initial building was basically the residential portion of the property, along with his studio, and also like a barn slash agricultural building that they could use to like have a small garden and eventually expand out. Yeah. Uh, The newspapers back in Chicago caught wind of Tallison and they started calling it Castle of Love or the Love Bungalow, all these kind of derogatory names because he had escaped the city with his mistress. Even the local spring green paper condemned the couple. They were upset that they had brought their scandalous affair to the quiet Wisconsin town. Quote, the scandal is bound to have a demoralizing effect on the school children of the community.
0: Yeah, what will the children say? God.
1: It is an outrage to allow young men and women and boys and girls to grow up in the belief that a man and woman can go disregarding their marriage bonds. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, that was a quote from the superintendent of the local schools in Spring Green from their local Spring Green paper. Wow. Yeah. So even the superintendent's like, I don't like this guy. He's immoral.
0: I mean, like, I don't condone cheating on your spouse, but I mean, it's not like this thing that should ruin your entire life. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I did find some statements that I thought were pretty interesting because they came from Frank Lloyd Wright himself, and he actually made them in papers in Chicago, including the the local uh, spring green paper. He said things like, quote, two women are necessary for a man of artistic mind, one to be the mother of his children and the other to be his mental companion, his inspiration and his soulmate.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's kind of fucked up, but you know.
1: He's so humble, don't you think? (laughs) So humble.
0: One has to be, you know the typical woman at this time period, but the other can be someone you actually enjoy and has a personality.
1: (laughs) Uh, The other quote I thought was pretty uh, interesting was, quote, laws and rules are made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. It is infinitely more difficult to live without rules, but that is what the really honest, sincere thinking man is compelled to do.
0: I kind of like that quote a little
1: i do too but in the fact that he like is in co- talking about it in context to him like leaving his wife of 20 years yeah. and stealing a client's wife
0: it's a little shitty yeah a
1: little, little full of himself there yeah. but oh
0: yeah oh definitely <laughs> see i had no idea about any of this
1: yeah me either i was like what so over the next few years right continues to split his time between Tallahassee and chicago and he's working on you know private commissions As well as planning and implementing a bunch of upgrades to Taliesin and like explaining the whole property into like a proper functioning, self-sustaining estate. It's really what he wanted. Meanwhile, Maman spends most of her time at Taliesin, where she's working on translating more books into English and would spend time with her children who live with her husband primarily, but they were granted regular visitation. In the summer of 1914, Wright was hired to design and build Midway Gardens a 360,000-square-foot entertainment complex that featured a beer garden and concert venue in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. This project kept Wright busy most of the summer. Meanwhile, at Taliesin, Mama's two children, John, who was 12 at the time, and Martha, who was 8, were visiting for the summer. There was also a larger-than-usual staff on the property. A work crew was at Taliesin to complete several summer improvements that Wright had planned for the property. The crew included carpenter Billy Weston, 35, his 13-year-old son, Ernest, two draftsmen, Emile Bordel and Herbert Fritz, both in their 20s, a gardener, David Lindblom, who was in his 50s, and a laborer, Thomas Brunker, who was 66.
0: A laborer who was 66? Yes,
1: he was an older fellow who was like a general laborer for the property.
0: Damn, I mean, you know, I probably should calm down a little at that age. I mean, heck. But I mean, if you Kudos. want to do it, you want to do it. But I just, I'm afraid of someone like busting a hip <laughs> because I'm not in my 60s and I'm pretty sure I could easily bust a hip any day. Man. So.
1: So for Oh, well,
0: hey, it's not my fault. <laughs> just the way my body is.
1: At the beginning of summer, Wright had also hired Julian Carleton and his wife Gertrude to clean and cook for the household. Carlton was around 30 years old at the time and was originally from Barbados and had worked as a caterer for several years in Chicago. According to his wife, Carlton had become increasingly nervous and paranoid during the summer they lived at Taliesin. On August 15, 1914, Mama and her two children sat down for lunch on the airy porch of Taliesin, while the property work crew gathered in the main dining room inside the property for their own lunch. After Carleton served soup to everyone, he told his wife to leave the property immediately and wait for him nearby.
0: Huh. Not suspicious at all? No, not at all.
1: He then returned to the porch with a hatchet. Carleton walked up behind Ma's chair and struck her in the head with the hatchet, killing her. He quickly attacked her son, John, who was also seated at the table next to her. Little Martha managed to get up and run from the table, but Carlton caught her a few yards into the garden where he struck her several times in the head with the hatchet. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. He just snapped.
0: Okay. That's all right.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, in the dining room, the work crew didn't hear the violence on the porch since they were basically on the other side of the house.
0: So they're just like, mm, this sandwich is good.
1: Yeah, pretty Come much. Right? Like, this soup is a little spicy, today. don't is, you think? Is this watercress? Oh. <laughs> it's watercress. <laughs> <laughs> So they're enjoying their lunch. They don't think anything's amiss until they see liquid that looks a little bit like dishwater flowing under the door of the dining room. Draftsman Herb Fritz and his table mates notice this unusual substance. Later, Fritz said, quote, we heard a swish as the water was thrown through the screen door. Then we saw some fluid coming in under the door. It looked like dishwater. It spread all over the floor. Yeah. The liquid ran under my chair and I noticed the smell of gasoline. Then a moment later, a streak of flame shot under my chair.
0: Damn.
1: Yeah. Carlton had soaked the bodies of mama and her children with gasoline and then bolted the door of the dining room shut before flooding the room with more gasoline and setting it on fire.
0: Wow. Yeah. So he like really went nuts. He
1: really went nuts. He had trapped the men in the dining room. They are now also on fire too because it's like all over the floor. It got on them. They're trying to break down this bolted door or escape through windows.
0: He knew they were there, right? Yep.
1: He, knew they were the- he gave them lunch. He served them lunch. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right.
1: Now, the men did manage to eventually bust down the door. Um, a few had jumped out of windows. For example, the reason that Herbert Fritz was able to give a statement later is because he had jumped through the window. And while he had broken his arm, he still managed to roll down a hillside and get away from the building as he like put the flames out in his clothes.
0: Yeah. Stop, drop, and roll, everybody. <laughs> yeah.
1: The other men he, were- he was eating with weren't that lucky, unfortunately. Damn it. Carlton was hiding in wait with the hatchet and he ended up... Holy shit. Yeah, he jumped out and attacked Emile Bordell. He manages to kill Emile Bordell with the hatchet and at the same time, once he finishes Emile, the other men are able to, to run through the flames. Billy and Ernest Weston run through the door. Carlton attacks them. He ends up fatally wounding Billy's son, Ernest, before the two manage to scramble away and escape. Then... Carlton goes after Thomas Brunker and David Lindblom. Both Brunker and Lindblom were pretty badly burned, but they still managed to fight off Carlton, sustaining more injuries at the time. But they were able to scramble away as well. Yeah. As Tallison was engulfed by flames, Billy Weston and David Lindblom managed to make it the half mile to the nearest neighbors and phone for help. Okay. When authorities arrived, they were able to extinguish the fire and get medical treatment for the survivors. Unfortunately, Ernest Weston, Thomas Brunker, and David Lindblom died of their injuries several days later. That sucks. Super sucks. The local sheriff also discovered Julian Carlton in a fireproof furnace room of Taliesin, and he arrested him. Turns out that Carlton had locked himself into this fireproof room, but he had a backup plan. He had a small vial of hydrochloric acid that he drank Unfortunately, the suicide attempt failed and the acid ended up just really horribly injuring his esophagus, making it difficult for him to eat and speak. Wow. The sheriff also discovers in a field nearby, Carlton's wife, Gertrude. She was dressed in traveling clothes and she said she was expecting to catch a train with her husband to seek a new job and was apparently unaware of her husband's murderous plans.
0: Damn.
1: Yeah. So in total, seven people were killed that day. Only Billy Weston and Herbert Fritz survived Carlton's attack. In Chicago, Wright was notified of a fire at Taliesin late on August 15th. And when he arrived home, he discovered the massacre. Wow. Yeah. Now, Carlton was indicted the next day on August 16th and was charged with the murder of Emile Bordell, since that was the only murder that anyone had actually witnessed and survived. Mm Mm-hmm. Carlton pled not guilty, but offered no additional information as to why he committed the crime. To this day, we still don't know his motives since Carlton died in jail of starvation seven weeks after the fire.
0: Oh, man. See, that's what I hate. Just like the movie The Strangers. Mm-hmm. I loved that movie. I thought it was so good. But then it's just like, why are you doing this? Because you were home. Yeah. I'm You're just like. like That is a bullshit fucking reason. Give me the actual explanation of what's going on.
1: (laughs) It's scarier that way, Edom.
0: But it's not scarier that way. It's just dumb.
1: (laughs) So the reason why Carlton committed this crime has been speculated about for years. Yeah. There's been a couple different theories that have piled up based on witness statements and just historians and authorities looking at the detailed records. A couple of them say that it was really because of some work disputes that it started to pile up in the previous week or two before the incident.
0: I can relate. Yeah. Who doesn't get mad? Yeah. Who
1: doesn't get mad? Um, aside from his wife saying that Carlton had started exhibiting these like paranoid thoughts as soon as they arrived in Taliesin. Yeah. He seemed a little unstable. He had also apparently had an argument with a couple of the workers, something about not saddling a horse correctly. Okay, And then there were a couple other arguments specifically with Emile Bordell and some of the witnesses to those arguments say that Bordell even directed some racial slurs at Carlton since he was black.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. He's from Barbados. Yeah.
1: Now, Gertrude Carlton, his wife, also confirmed that Mama had given the couple notice that they would no longer be needed at Taliesin, and that August 15th was actually going to be their final day of employment. Oh. And that's why Gertrude was like in her traveling codes, ready to go back to Chicago. Um, This lack of a clear motive ended up muddying the media coverage of the tragedy at Taliesin, too. Oh, wow. So while the newspapers covered every single gruesome detail they could find out about Carlton's massacre their speculation about the root cause really didn't have any of that information. Like maybe it was a work dispute, maybe it was whatever. It took this tone of like, maybe it was divine intervention. (gasps) Maybe this is what happens to people who have horrible scandalous affairs. Oh my
0: God.
1: Yeah. It was some like hypercritical, like some shit. Yeah. Like a victim blaming bullshit. Yeah. And it's just, it makes the whole situation even more awful.
0: That's really bad. Yeah.
1: And as you can imagine, Frank Lloyd Wright, who thought he had found his soulmate and intellectual equal, and Mama was totally devastated. Yeah. He actually had a bit of a breakdown. Uh, One of the sources I read said that he, like, suffered, I forget exactly what the disorder was, but basically he would suffer from exhaustion and fits of temporary blindness, just all of this, like, just he was messed up for a while. And part of his way to recover from this loss is he decided to rebuild Taliesin as a tribute to Mama. Okay, so he sets about building the replacement, which was dubbed Talison Two. He updated and rebuilt the residential portion of the burnt estate, and it seemed to be going well. Eventually, he met another woman and remarried, but maybe something about the estate is cursed. Maybe because the second incarnation of Talison was also destroyed by a fire. Oh
0: God! It's like um, what was that? I think it was like uh, the Notchland in or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, kept burning down. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, a little bit like this. Um in 1925, a lightning storm apparently struck the house and it ignited some faulty wiring and a fire actually started in Frank Lloyd Wright's bedroom of the house, but he was eating dinner and he noticed it. So they were able to stop was the Farrah fire faucet. No. No, it wasn't it wasn't it was just the bedroom it wasn't the bed. Okay. This faucet is clear on these charges. <laughs> Um, But they were able to save most of the property. However, the original, the second house was pretty much destroyed. But not to be thwarted, Frank Lloyd Wright again rebuilt Taliesin.
0: Just give up, Frank. Nope. Just do it.
1: On the exact same spot as the original house, he built Taliesin III. And after Wright's death in 1959, the estate's ownership passed to the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, who set about preserving the estate. Okay. Okay. Taliesin was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1976 and as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in July of 2019. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting and neat. I never knew this existed in the middle of Spring Green, Wisconsin. Yeah. Today, Taliesin is open for public tours. Uh, events are held there regularly. And they're all kind of focused around educating visitors about the innovations and creations and legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright. Not many of them focus on the murder. So if you're into a dark tourism trip, you <laughs> probably won't get it at Talison. Yeah. They have a lot of other things to talk about. They do mention it and it's very they're very upfront about it, but it's very like this is what happened. It was a horrible, horrible murder, murders happened here, and then a fire. Yeah. And then they kind of move on to the rest of his career because this was, you know, he was a pretty young guy. He was like in his forties at the time when this happened. So yeah. he had a whole other decades after this in his career. But yeah. So that's the story of murder at Talisman, which is pretty crazy, right?
0: Yeah, it was not what I was expecting. I was expecting it to be the, you know, usual suspect. Mm-hmm. One of the spouses being like, well, fuck you. You cheated. Yeah. And now I'm going to kill you.
1: Yeah. When I saw the head, I'm like, it's Kitty. Kitty did it. I knew. Yep. Like, nope.
0: But apparently not.
1: Just an unstable cook. Yeah. Unstable employee. Crazy.
0: That is really weird. Yeah. I enjoyed the story, but it's definitely not what I was expecting (laughs) at all.
1: Uh, So my sources for this week were Mental Floss, Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, Preservation.org, the New York Daily News, and History.com.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Nicole. You're welcome. I guess we'll go and take our break, and then I'll be back with a pretty lighthearted story for you guys.
1: All right. See you soon, gang. (laughs)
0: And we're back.
1: Back, gang. We missed you.
0: I have an interesting news article for y'all again.
1: I'm excited. The weird ass news of the week.
0: Weird news. That's correct. So this one is actually from Japan.
1: Ooh. Uh,
0: It says transparent public toilets unveiled in Tokyo parks, but they also offer privacy. Thank God. I saw the pictures of them and they were like really weird. I'm like, I'm not being in that. You can see right fucking through it. (laughs) But I'm going to show you the pictures. Like That's what they look like.
1: Okay. I like the lighting. It looks fancy. The lighting
0: is beautiful. But apparently they said that they had two different problems. It was that whenever you go to a public restroom, you never know if someone's in there. And you Mm -hmm. never know if it's going to be clean until you walk in. Uh So this is supposed to eliminate having to not be able to see before you go in. But what happens is the lighting that they have there turns the thing from translucent to like fogged yes Oh, okay. so therefore you can't really see in anymore but it's still, but if it's foggy no go it still seems kind of like um, i don't know you're gonna see like a silhouette or something i don't know that's what it seems like to me
1: it cracks me up though that like just because like japan has like such a such an interesting set of etiquette yeah. social etiquette that they're like it's very embarrassing to have to knock on the door and be like excuse me is anyone in there yeah i mean i get it I have the panics.
0: I remember Joe telling me about uh, there was like a table of like Japanese businessmen uh, at the restaurant the one time. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them sneezed and the waitress said, God bless you. And then she's like, oh, well, what do you say in in your country when someone sneezes? I'm curious. And like, we don't notice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, that's interesting. yeah I mean I just I'm all that for was more cool. I'm all for more public toilets maybe not translucent. maybe
0: else. not translucent, but they are very pretty. So if you guys want to look at the pictures, look at the pictures because they are pretty cool looking.
1: It's art, but also
0: but also something you pee in. <laughs> which is art to some people, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I do have a good story for you this week.
1: All right, tell me more.
0: So today we are going to Washington Island, Wisconsin for what I hope will be an enjoyable and fun story. Washington Island is in Door County and has a population of only 708 as of 2010. When you're looking at the state of Wisconsin, there's this little island chain off that little peninsula there. That's where Washington Island is. Okay. A lot of people, even local to the state, don't really know about it. Uh, The island's area is 125.5 square miles, but 100 square miles of that is actually water, so it isn't as large as it sounds. Ooh. Ooh. The other nearby islands are Plum Island, Detroit Island, Hog Island, Rock Island, Pilot Island, and Fish Island. The other islands, considered part of Washington Island, by the way, either have the smallest of populations or no one really at all, and they are all partly or completely state parks and wildlife refuges.
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: I think it's pretty cool. So, fun fact, most settlers... Who found their way to washington island are icelandic and it's also home to the largest population of icelandic people outside of iceland which is pretty cool and not all that surprising if you know anything at all about the midwest
1: it is kind of cool i guess they just love islands
0: yeah i think it's pretty neat so from what i was able to find it seems like most of washington island's economy is centered around tourism Obviously, there are beaches, and with all the wildlife sanctuaries and state parks, it's a nature buff's wet dream. If you're looking to do anything outdoors, this would be a good spot to do it in. However, if you're looking for a drink, look no further than Nelson's Hall and Bitters Club, the subject of our story, where the spirits on the shelf and in your glass aren't the only ones you'll see. Nice. First, I just want to say that this place has a lot of name varieties. Some places call it Nelson's Hall, while others call it Nelson's Pub, Nelson's Hall and Bitter's Club, or Nelson's Hall Bitter's Pub. So for the sake of simplicity, I'll be doing what they do in legal documents and refer to it only as Nelson's Hall unless specifically addressing name changes to make things a little easier for everyone, including myself.
1: All right, sounds good.
0: You may be curious as to the Bitters Club or Bitters Pub part of the name. Well, there's a tradition at this bar of taking a shot of uh, Angostura bitters.
1: Mm, I love bitters.
0: It's good in things, but drinking it by itself is not something people normally do.
1: I know, but it does, does sound very Icelandic though.
0: Yes. So very few people outside this bar actually do this because bitters don't really taste that good on their own. Uh, I went through a period of time with my ex-husband, who was a bartender, where he would have me try a random shot of things that are more often mixed than ingested on their own. <laughs> uh, this included dry and sweet vermouth and, of course, bitters. Bitters are used to add a slight earthy flavor for drinks. It's a little clovey. Um, but some people like to take a quick shot of them on their own for health reasons.
1: So almost like a mixture. Like almost like the idea of uh, apple cider vinegar or um, any kind of like, what is it? Aquavita. Yeah. Like that, what is it? Swedish sort of like Mm -hmm. hard spirit that's super herbaceous and it kind of wipes your palate clean. Correct. Gotcha.
0: Angostura bitters can actually relieve heartburn on occasion, help with stomach issues, promote healthy digestive enzymes, help with blood sugar. Uh, and do a few other things as well. However, you shouldn't really do more than a shot or a half shot because it can cause an unfortunate side effect you definitely don't want during a night out at the bar. Diarrhea. Yikes. Yeah. Never a good time.
1: No. I don't
0: like having it in private. I certainly don't like having it in public. Mm-mm. So uh, one of those stomach concerns that it does help with is constipation. So yeah. Oh. Um, They've also been said to cure hiccups and were used to treat sailors for seasickness. Anyway, back to this tradition of ingesting bitters. There aren't many bars on the island, and this one is pretty popular, so a lot of locals have done this. You go into Nelson's and take a shot, Uh, and then you are given a card and become a member of the bitters club. Which means you too can become an honorary member of the island community free to dance and mingle with the locals. This custom is done to honor the tradition of its former owner, Tom Nelson. That shot of bitters will cost you four dollars and fifty cents and gets you a stamped membership card. Fancy. What's the stamp what's it stamped with? Well, bitters, of course. They actually stick their thumb. In the shot glass after you've downed this clove-flavored bad boy and stamp it onto the card. (laughs) Tom Nelson was a Danish immigrant who moved to Wisconsin in the late 1800s. He then explored a lot of its lands and even fared the most tempestuous parts of Lake Michigan to get to the island where so many shipwrecks had occurred. Back then, it was known as Death's Door Strait at that point.
1: That's like pretty badass.
0: Yeah. Because <laughs> so many people died. Um, you already know the Bitter's Club part of the establishment's name, but the hall part comes from back when Nelson first opened his business in 1899 as a dance hall. The bar actually didn't open for another three years. Okay. The reason I actually chose this particular story was because of how this place handled one of my favorite times in American history, Prohibition. I love a good prohibition story. I don't I know. know about you. but Yeah, for sure. As we know, from January 17th, 1920 to December 5th, 1933, the sale and consumption of alcohol was banned. This is always a bad idea, guys, because people will always find a way to do what they want, and it just really increased crime. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about this time period, you know mob bosses pretty much ran the booze trade and were among the biggest bootleggers causing crime to go up. And like I've probably mentioned before, at least two of my relatives during this time were bootleggers, but not in the mob as far as I know. One actually hanged himself when the cops were coming for him, and the other was forced out of the state.
1: Fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I think he went to like Michigan or something.
1: Well, NASCAR comes from bootlegging too. Oh, really? Yeah, so back when they used to make it like stills, like moonshine stills during Mm -hmm. Prohibition, you'd have to, and it lasted beyond Prohibition in certain parts of the country. They would have these jalopies, basically, that they would trick out with, like, better, faster suspension than the liquor enforcement agent cars so that they could load them with liquor and basically outrun them, which is why NASCAR always uses, like, a stock car. Yeah. Because that's what the bootleggers would use to build their bootlegging cars.
0: Oh, wow. Hmm. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool.
1: So aside from ladies' bathrooms and bars, Prohibition also gave us NASCAR. I really did <laughs> not know
0: that. That's really interesting. Uh, so, the major way alcohol sales were handled at this time were through speakeasies, uh, which were secret clubs that you needed a password to get into. These places were usually nondescript and well-hidden. They were also rife with crime, and cops that went there got to drink for free in most places.
1: I mean, cheapest way to buy off a cop, right? Yep,
0: exactly. Free drinks. Now... Tom Nelson took a different approach. Since we've discussed the medicinal properties of bitters, he capitalized on this by selling alcohol as a health product.
1: I've heard of something like this. Where, like, yeah. that's how like a lot of places, like distilleries and stuff, would stay in business too, because they can make bitters yep. as like medicinal.
0: Exactly, it was sold as like a, the health tincture. So, hmm. uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, it was this crazy loophole, and doctors at this time would even prescribe alcohol to some of their patients so it wasn't like he was the only one doing this Yeah, you
1: get like a prescription for whiskey yeah (laughs) i love it
0: that's the prescription i need (laughs) there's even one story about nelson being taken to court by the cops during prohibition where at trial he poured the judge a shot of bitters and the judge drank it saying anyone crazy enough to drink it should be allowed to do so
1: that's amazing i know
0: I guess alcohol as medicine isn't too far of a stretch when you think about the time period though since cigarettes were once considered a health product as well. So times have truly changed.
1: Like I have asthma, I need to smoke. I have I have nerves, I need I need some bitters.
0: Yeah, I have heart problems, I need to smoke. <laughs> guess what? That's going to make it worse. So, another fun fact. Bitters is actually 90 proof. Making it forty five percent alcohol. Mm-hmm. That's pretty damn strong, and is why they only have like a little bit, like a dash of it in most drinks.
1: I actually made my own bitters. Really? Yeah, pretty recently. And it is like you have to get like a grain alcohol. Yep. And then you soup whatever bittering agents you put into it in your herbs, and then you it's, have to yeah, cut like, it with water.
0: Yeah, it's herbs, water, grain alcohol, and sugar. Yeah. I'm
1: like, this is pretty tasty though.
0: Um, so yeah, uh it's 90 proof, which is forty five percent alcohol was damn strong. A beer is normally 5% alcohol or around there. Craft beers tend to be a little higher. Wine is a bit higher than that, and your typical vodka or whiskey would be normally around 70 proof, which is 35% alcohol, so mm-hmm. you can see how much higher it is. Yeah. Uh, let's just say Tom did very well for himself during Prohibition since it would seem everyone in town was suddenly suffering from stomach ailments. Curious. <laughs> So because of this, Nelson's Hall is actually the oldest continuously operating tavern in all of Wisconsin. Interesting. Cuz it got around prohibition. I don't know about you, but I freaking love this guy. Yes. I, I am think a fan. he's amazing. Uh it's for this reason that a shot of bitters is still the standard at this place today. Tom Nelson himself swore by the shot and would down the equivalent of 11 shots every day, which is around a pint. Damn. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure no one could ever tell him that he was full of shit after that because, (laughs) God, he must have had the best bowels on the face of the earth. He just ate cheese. That's all
1: cheese and bitters.
0: So that might be an excessive amount of bitters, and I honestly wouldn't recommend it in my completely unprofessional opinion, but it worked for him, and he lived to the ripe old age of 90. Hmm. Must have been doing something right.
1: Exactly. What's your secret? Bitters.
0: Bitters. I'm a bitter old man. Um, So during the mid-1900s, Nelson relinquished ownership of the bar and his nephew Gunnar, again, very Scandinavian name, Mm -hmm. uh, took over along with his wife, Bessie. They were actually the ones to start the Bitters Club in his honor, which after knowing about the prohibition thing, I'd kind of be mad if they didn't. Uh, this guy is my hero and I don't even really drink anymore. So the bar has had a handful of owners from that point on, but each one keeps the tradition alive. While a few bars might sell a handful of bitter shots and most probably don't even sell one. Yeah. Nelson's Hall sells over 10,000 or they don't sell over 10,000 a year. They order 10,000 like bottles of of bitters a year.
1: Wow. That's crazy. I feel like bitters are the, that thing you buy. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have it for there. years. Yep. Because <laughs> you use what? Like four, maybe five
0: drops in a drink? You really don't use much at all. Yeah. Yeah. But 10,000 bottles a year of bitters. Uh, the current owner says that on a busy weekend, they might go through three cases of bitters just in that weekend. That's like an amazing amount. That's crazy. Yeah. So... One visitor who wasn't aware of this custom upon entering said, quote, we stepped into this big white building where there seemed to be lots of people at the bar and someone was slamming back a shot glass and gagging. Because <laughs> it's really not the most pleasant taste. It's very strong. Mm-hmm. So since the time Tom Nelson started this bar and others started this tradition to honor him, they've gotten quite creative and actually have a Bitters Burger on the menu which is a burger seasoned in this clovey bitters before it's been cooked. I'd be into that. I would try it. Absolutely. So, I mean, they have like whiskey burgers and stuff. Exactly. So Why not bitters? There are other tributes uh, to the past as well in this place with pictures of Tom and other past owners hanging on the walls, as well as other bits of the bar's history on the wall as well. Cool. According to one of my sources, although the bar continued to operate, it was also used as a movie theater, dentist office, and ice cream parlor at different times.
1: So I guess whatever you needed to use it for, huh? Yeah.
0: I would love a bar movie theater. That would be cool.
1: Yeah. I would like an ice cream parlor bar.
0: Hell yeah. You could have like a little float, <laughs> grain alcohol float.
1: Well, no, you could make some amazing like alcoholic milkshakes or you could yeah. have like some gelato martinis. I'm just spitballing Ooh. here. I haven't thought about it too much. Buskers for in Rhode Island.
0: There's a place called Buskers in um, Newport, Rhode Island. And they have alcoholic milkshakes, and they're really good. Um, They're delicious. I want to go back so bad now. (laughs) As far as hauntings go, there are certainly a few things going bump in the night here. After all, this place sounds amazing, and I wouldn't mind spending my afterlife there. So doors are said to open and close on their own. Footsteps can be heard on the stairs when no one is around. And people say they can just feel a presence in the bar.
1: Do you think it's Tom?
0: I'll get to that in a minute. Ooh. Uh, one investigator said that there's something in the bathroom there and that he felt a little creeped out going in there. I mean, um,
1: welcome to the average night of a lady on Saturday. <laughs> oh, I know.
0: So who is behind this paranormal activity, you might ask, because you already did, Nicole?
1: Oh, Yes, I'm curious like that.
0: That would be its original owner, Tom Nelson. So Tom! you were correct um a few have even said that they've spotted his ghost around the place like i'm not sure if it was like full-bodied apparition or Mm -hmm. not but like you know quick glance and he's there so i mean like this was his baby this is what he built so he owned it for years and he's probably very happy with the success and that his bitters lives on today Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's a very bitter ghost It was a little difficult to find information on the paranormal side of this story, but after doing some heavier episodes lately, I thought that we needed something a little lighthearted instead just to, you know, give us all a break from the, from, you know, shitting our pants. That's fair. I mean, the bitters won't really help with that though, but, you know. That's also fair. So, honestly, the people who have experienced paranormal activity in the bar all said that it doesn't feel like there is anything at all negative And in my opinion, a chance to hang out with Tom Nelson makes me want to go there even more. I didn't have time to watch it, but I found out from my very last source when wrapping this up that the show Haunted State, which I've never heard of, did their first episode here. Oh, cool. So if I get a chance to watch it, I'll be sure to give you guys a rundown next week. Uh, So what's your thoughts, Nicole? Would you join the Bitters Club?
1: Heck yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I enjoy most drinks that have bitters. Like I like Zazerax a lot. That's one of my favorites. So for me, that's just interesting. So I feel like I, I would totally probably wretch a little bit, but yeah. I could do it. I could do it. And I get my little card and I take it home with me.
0: Like I said, I did a shot of bitters before I can handle it. <laughs> I did that in sweet vermouth and dry vermouth and other crap.
1: Oh, sweet vermouth is so gross on its own. It is. It it's really like, is. Do you like a once take sauce? Not that much. Not that much.
0: <laughs> Not that much. Exactly. Oh, Yeah. The vermouth was like a little weird. Interesting though. So, I mean, I kind of recommend actually doing that just to see what these things that are just used for little drops of flavor actually taste like.
1: Or they also are things that make excellent spritzers. Yeah. If you're looking for a low alcohol cocktail. Yeah. Throw some, you know, bitters or some vermouth into some club soda and there you go.
0: That's very true.
1: It's summertime. I can't drink heavily in the summertime.
0: Follow us for more drink recipes. (laughs) Um, my sources for this week were Wikipedia for my intro, uh, AtlasObscura.com, DrinksFeed.com, DoorCountyPulse.com, JSOnline.com, TalesOfTheCocktail.org, OnMilwaukee.com, and ExperienceWisconsinMag.com.
1: Tales of the Cocktail. Yeah. I could post some things on that blog. Right got some stories.
0: Yeah, it seemed like a pretty cool website. It was the first time I had to use it because, I mean, we don't really do alcohol-related stories, (laughs) except for that one ghost that would just drink everything.
1: Oh, yeah, he would steal all the best wine. Yeah.
0: Well, that's my story.
1: I liked it. It was lighthearted. Thank you, Eden.
0: You're welcome. We needed something cheery, and I definitely want to go to this place now, even if I have to spend 25 minutes on a boat to do so.
1: I mean, cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that Lake Michigan is quite beautiful, so... Mm -hmm. Might have some fun if I don't get seasick, but I'll just drink some bitters <laughs> and be okay. Exactly.
1: You're covered. <laughs> All right, gang. That is our show for this week. If you have any feedback for us or if you just want to say hi, you can do that in a number of ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com.
0: You can go to our website, which is com.
1: You can stop by Facebook or Instagram. Our pages are Roadside Horror Show, or you can tweet us on Twitter at Roadside Horror.
0: Uh, we'd like to thank Yax Rocks Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our amazing intro and outro music.
1: Until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on.
0: on.